Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Luke. As we are continuing our study of this book, what we're really doing is meditating on Scripture. You meditate on Scripture when you take a certain passage and you go over it and over it and over it, and you chew on it. To meditate means you look, the word has the connotation of looking at a diamond from a lot of different perspectives, examining it from all these different angles. The word also, the root of it actually has to do with chewing on something, to, to, to just chew and savor it. So we're not going very fast. We've been in the book of Luke for almost three months, and we're still on verse 13 uh, of chapter 1. And, uh, but that's okay. Uh, there's no hurry in this. We just want to hover over this and just say, Lord, teach us. I really do like this way of doing things. It's not necessarily the most entertaining way, but this, we're not about entertainment. What happens is things can pop out at you that otherwise you never really notice. And the message this morning and probably next week as well is a case in point. Uh, there's something I had not noticed uh, the first and second and third reading of this chapter that I noticed this time, and it strikes me as monumentally important. In fact, when I first read through the first part of Luke chapter 1 as I was preparing this series, I was kind of thinking maybe there's one sermon in this. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see that much that was preachable. Uh, but here we are uh, three months later, and we're only up to verse 13. It comes alive. The word comes alive when you don't rush through it. You can't read it like a newspaper. Don't read it just for information. Read it to, to, to chew on it and to meditate and let the Lord bring some things uh, to life. So we're reading from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, encouraging everyone to bring their Bibles to church. And I'm reading from the TNIV version. Zechariah, as you know, is in the inner court of the temple offering up incense, which is symbolic of God's delight in the worship and prayer and sacrifice of his people. And as he's doing that, an angel shows up, and the angel says to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord, in front of the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn, look at this, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Let's pray. I'd like to get some people, if I could, who would be my intercessors in this message, keep my message covered in prayer. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Father, uh, some of us here this morning are parents. Some of us aren't. Some of us plan to be. Some of us don't. But what I know is that your word has got something for all of us here this morning, and we just pray, God, that your will would be accomplished in all of our lives. We don't for a moment look for human wisdom or eloquent speeches to accomplish that. That's really quite a waste of time. Father, we trust in the power of your spirit to infuse words and anoint words, empower words to build the kingdom. So Holy Spirit, be present here. Be present here, right here and right now, in a tangible way. Help us to pay attention, help our minds to be open, help our hearts to be open that we might walk out of here more thoroughly transformed kingdom revolution people 
than we were when we came. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. 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 As I mentioned last week, there are two prophecies about John the Baptist in the Old Testament. Uh, one is found in Isaiah 40 and the other one's found in Micah. Uh, later on in chapter 3, Luke will pay more attention to the Isaiah 40 prophecy. Right now he's paying more attention to the Micah prophecy. Uh, in Micah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we hear the Lord saying this, uh, I will send you the prophet Elijah, which really just means one like Elijah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now, as I mentioned last week, uh, in the Old Testament, they didn't really have a clear conception that the Lord was going to come in two different phases. They saw it all as one thing and couldn't really figure out how the mercy and judgment came together. What we learn after the Lord comes the first time is that his coming to earth in this final chapter of world history, which in the Bible is called the last days. Uh, it's lasted 2,000 years, may go on for another 2,000 years, but it's the final chapter, the end times. What we now know is that that's happening in, in, in two stages. The Lord comes in mercy, and later on, he's going to come in judgment. He plants the kingdom, and then he'll come and uh, finalize the work of building the kingdom here on earth. And so Micah says that before the Lord comes to inaugurate these last days, which will culminate in that day of judgment, uh, before that, this one like Elijah would come. And then Micah says the first thing he would do would be to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. So, the Lord says, I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Whether or not the land would be part of the judgment or not depends on what happens in families. Are the hearts of the parents towards their children and are the hearts of the children towards their parents? As I said before, I wasn't looking for this. I, I didn't really notice it the first couple passes on this passage. And then all of a sudden, it jumped out at me. It's not really what I expected. Uh, you might expect when the end times is being inaugurated that the wicked would turn to righteousness, as Luke says. You might expect the sun to grow dark and the moon to turn to blood and the stars to fall from the sky and apocalyptic things like that. But I didn't expect to find, let alone find as the first sign of the coming covenant, that the hearts of parents would turn towards their kids. Now that I look at it, it makes perfect sense. Because one of God's primary designs, intentions for humanity on the earth had to do with kids. I want to give the background to this. In the book of Genesis, we find what is really the Magna Carta of, of the human race. Our, our primary job description is given right when we're created. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And here the Lord says, it says, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and then said to them, this is the first word of God to human beings, the first command out of God's mouth to human being. All right, this is our Magna Carta. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. What we find in this passage, and it really runs throughout all of Scripture, is that God's plan for human beings on the earth is that we would be his viceroys on the earth. We would be his co-rulers on the earth. The Lord wants to be the Lord over all of heaven and earth, over the whole cosmos. 
But because he's the triune social God whose main objective is love, he does it through mediaries, free agents uh, who can align their will with him or not. And the job of human beings is to align our will with God's will and then carry out his providence here on the planet Earth. Uh, we're, We're to administrate his providence here on the Earth. We're the stewards and guardians of the Earth. The goal is, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 when he taught us the Lord's Prayer, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our primary job description. We participate in God's rule by aligning our will with his and by how we live on this planet. That's been the goal from the start. It still is the goal. And when the dome of God, the kingdom of God, is manifested, human beings begin to recover that original job description. And in the end, when God's reign is fully established on the earth, the human reign on the earth will be fully established because that's how God's reign was always intended to be established on the earth, through us. And so we read, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says the saying is sure. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The goal has always been for God to have a bride who out of the fullness of love that she receives from God and gives back to God out of the fullness of life reigns with him, sits with him on the throne in in ruling the world. In Revelations chapter 5, the author says, you've made them to be a kingdom of priests serving our God and they will reign on the earth. God's kingdom will be established on this earth and humans will be restored to their place as rulers on the earth. In Revelations chapter 20, it says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him. We reign with him for a thousand years, which was simply a uh, a symbolic way of, of denoting forever. In Revelations 22, it says, And there will be... No more night, and they, uh, they need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they, the human beings, will reign forever and ever. Uh, the goal has always been for human beings to be God's viceroys on this planet, co-rulers. And that will be consummated in the end of the age. When the kingdom shows up here and now, there's a revolution taking place. We had surrendered authority over to, to the devil Uh, And so the earth has become corrupted and polluted on every level. And we have lost the dominion and authority that we were to have. But as the kingdom of God shows up, it was planted with Jesus Christ, and that's what started the revolution. And as this revolution goes forward, human beings begin to re-exercise their authority on the earth. You begin to, as we said earlier, take back what he stole from us. Because it belongs to God, and he wants it back. And part of our job description is to now take that back. We begin to reign on earth. We begin to apply God's loving dominion on earth as it is in heaven. In Genesis, there are three specific domains of authority that we're given. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply. We have the domain of responsibility with our kids. We're to have dominion over over the animals and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. We're to apply God's dominion to the animals. And then we have it over the land, over the, the entire earth. To have dominion does not mean to dominate. To have dominion in God's uh, mode is to simply have a domain of authority. 
Um, it, it's to, to take a, a domain of responsibility. And we are to rule over that domain in a way that reflects God's character, in a way that reflects God's disposition to us. As God is to us, that kind of love, we're to now administer to our children, to the animals, and to the earth. I believe that one of the best indications, one of the best barometers indicating how we're doing as a race in terms of our relationship with God uh, is how well, we're, fitting, uh, how well we're, we're fulfilling this Magna Carta, this original job description. How are we treating our kids? How are we treating animals? How are we treating the earth? And um, so far as I can see, we're still scoring very low marks in all three areas. I'll just note as a sort of footnote here that uh, having a concern for animals over and beyond just our use of them and having a concern for the earth over and beyond just our use for it, that is not, as many Christians seem to think, a sort of liberal, wacko, new age, nutso, ethereal, channeling deal. <laughs> uh, in some Christian circles, you bring up a concern for the environment and a concern for animals and their welfare and ascribing worth to them, and people automatically write you off. Maybe some of you are writing me off right now because I'm talking this way. But look it, it's in the Bible. I read it to you. Did you read that? <laughs> Uh, we're to have loving dominion over them. There are responsibilities. That's not wacko. That's Bible. Now, I may be wacko for other reasons, but on this one, I'm just... Okay, that's a different sermon, though. I'm not going to preach on that. Some other time I might. Our concern here this morning is with our domain of responsibility and authority that pertains to our kids. We're, our identity is partners with God. We're, we're created to be partners with God. And nowhere is our partnership with God more beautifully and awesomely manifested than in the fact that we partner with God in bringing forth human beings. We create life. Our decisions create life. God is the author, of course, of all life. He is life itself. But God, as he does in every area of life, chooses to exercise that power through mediaries, through our decisions. What we decide to do really uh, determines how God and when God creates life. We have the, our choices bring about life in the same way that our choices can bring about death. And this area where we partner with God in bringing into existence eternal souls is the most awesome, austere area of, 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 of the dominion that we have as human beings. When my first daughter was born... 24 years ago now, um, I, uh, it, this really gripped me. It, it, was, it was at one and the same time the most beautiful and most horrifying experience I think I'd had in my life up to that point. Uh, it was horrifying because I uh, hadn't watched the movies. I, I didn't anticipate, my daughter came out with a cone head. I, I thought she was brain damaged. You know, it's like, oh no, and, and she looked like a little purple lizard who couldn't breathe. And, and I was, you know, so I was freaked out. It was so bloody and like, what is that? You know, it was... So it was, it was horrifying. But there's also this awesomeness that just struck me like, this is any, oh, what have we done? We brought into being an eternal soul. What a responsibility. What, how, what, what beauty. Uh, we created life. I mean, the awesomeness of it just gripped me. It's an incredible thing that God puts into our, our hands the ability to partner with him in bringing forth life. One of the reasons why I believe that God puts such strong, why God puts such strong parameters around sex 
It's not because God is a killjoy, you know, Victorian prudish God who doesn't want his kids to have fun. Uh, look at sex was his idea, all right? <laughs> Give him credit. He's pretty creative. Um, the reason is that this, the act of sexual union is, is sacred. It is, it's, it's the most sacred thing we got. Out of this comes life, beings with eternal souls. And what God is saying is, don't screw around with this. Excuse the metaphor. Don't, don't, this is sacred. I didn't intend that even. This is sacred stuff. This is precious. Uh, this needs to be honored. It needs to be separated from other things. It, ne it needs to, you know, have, have parameters around it. it. It's a holy thing. And that's why you have these strong parameters around sexual activity in the Bible. Now, I want to make sure that I'm not misunderstood here. This doesn't mean that the only purpose for sex is to have kids. There's kind of an old traditional teaching that says that. Not surprisingly, the traditional teaching comes from priests who took a vow of celibacy and were in monasteries, and I think they were just jealous or something like, okay, but only for kids. You know? No, there's nothing of that in the Bible. It, um, sexual union uh, between people who have committed their lives to one another is, is, is a good in and of itself. The physical union expresses the spiritual union, and, 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 it, it, and, and the delight and the joy there is, is a good in and of itself. Now, out of that union can come children, and, and that's part of the sacredness of it, but you can't reduce the meaning of sex to having children, at least not, if not from a biblical perspective. Another thing I want to make clear. And that is Genesis 1 does not mean that every couple has a responsibility to have kids. Um, someone has said, I think, quite wisely that, that Genesis 1, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it's arguably the only command that human beings as a whole have actually fulfilled. <laughs> uh, we've done a pretty good job of that one. <laughs> okay, God, let, let's move on to the second command now, you know. Um, and I don't think there's an obligation on, on having children and filling the earth. The earth is already filled. So there are couples who uh, could have kids, but they choose not to, and I think that's an honorable decision. And there are couples who want to have kids, but in this fallen world where everything is a little bit mixed up and nothing operates quite like it's supposed to, uh, they can have kids. But as I said, the world is full of kids, and so there's, there's kids who are looking for homes to be adopted. The main point of Luke 1 is this. If you choose to partner with God in having children, uh, there's an awesome responsibility that, that lands on you. It's also a wonderful privilege. And what Luke 1 is about is that when the kingdom shows up, uh, the hearts of parents will be turned towards their kids. When the kingdom shows up, God's design for families and for society and for the earth begins to be fulfilled. When the kingdom shows up, uh, parents are able to see the preciousness, awesomeness of, of the child, the eternal soul that they have brought into being. When the kingdom shows up, parents begin to take seriously their responsibility in raising kids. When the kingdom shows up, parents begin to treat their kids the way God treats them, with all that mercy. As we've said many times before, when the kingdom shows up, it looks like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself was the, the manifestation, the incarnation of the kingdom. The kingdom of God doesn't look like, like a nation. It doesn't look like a political party. It doesn't look like a religion. It doesn't look like any institution. The kingdom of God looks like people who, who look like Jesus, who live in self-sacrificial love, uh, who, who, who manifest the Calvary quality of love in their life. 
So when the kingdom shows up in families, it means that parents begin to get their life from Christ and begin to overflow with life towards their kids. When the kingdom shows up, parents begin to have a Christ-like love for their children. When the kingdom shows up, parents begin to ascribe unsurpassable worth to their children at cost to themselves, even when their kids don't deserve it, because God ascribes unsurpassable worth to them even when they don't deserve it. When the kingdom of God shows up, kids learn what God is like by looking at their parents. And now God's will is being done in the family as it is in heaven. God's will for the children is being carried out. So the question I want to ask here is this. How do we become kingdom parents? And those of you who aren't parents, don't tune this out. Those of you who don't plan on being parents, don't tune this out. Those of you who used to be parents but aren't parents anymore, don't tune this out. Because I guarantee you there'll be principles for all of us here. But I want to hover around the central question, how do we become kingdom parents whose hearts are turned towards the kids? And you might suspect at this point that I'm going to give you 19 tips on how to raise children, but I'm not. I don't have 19 tips on how to raise children. I raised three of my own, and I still feel about as dumb about that now as I was when I started. Uh, But see, the Bible, most of the issues of life aren't about having tips. It's not about your head. Most of the core issues of life are about your heart. If your heart is towards your kids, you can screw up some of the tips, and you're still going to be a great parent. But if your heart's not towards your kid, you can have the 19 tips or the 99 tips and do them all right, but you're still going to be a pretty poor parent. The issue is about your heart. And so what I want to do right now is quickly go through two non-negotiable principles about kingdom parenting. And oddly enough, in a sermon about turning the hearts of parents to their kids, I'm not going to talk about kids at all because it's really about parents. Two non-negotiable kingdom principles. And actually, this will lay the groundwork for what I want to do uh, next week as we carry it out in a a few more concrete, practical ways. Two principles. Principle number one, if you're going to be a kingdom parent, get a life. If you're going to be a kingdom parent, get a life. And the only way way to get a life is to get it from Christ. By life. By life, I mean mean wholeness, a sense of wholeness. Amen. Amen. I mean a sense of well-being, your sense of purpose, your sense of significance, your sense of being fully alive, your sense of security. You've got to be getting that from Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can really give that. You see, if your heart is hungry for life, and it will be if you're not getting it from Christ, because everybody on the planet needs those things, non-negotiable. It's like air to the lungs. If you're not getting your life from Christ, you've got to try to get it from other things. And so the way we do it in this culture is we try to get life and security and significance and importance from things like the things that we own, the possessions we acquire, how things look, how we appear, who we impress, the recognition that we get, the achievements that we accomplish, or the all-time great is religion, the rightness of our beliefs and the rightness of our behavior, which makes us feel special and distinct and separate and special to God and whatnot. We feed off of those things that make us feel good and alive and, and, and important and significant. But that hunger for those things will always drive you away from your kids. Why is it that so many fathers are never home? They're, they're out doing stuff, and it's not just about money. They're feeding something fundamental in their lives. All of those things will drive you away from your kids. But not only that. If you're, live, if you're living life on empty, if your heart is hungry, you're starving to death. A heart that's hungry for life is a heart that's got to be centered on itself. Though you are not conscious of it, you're thinking about food, spiritual food, all the time. And if you're a parent whose heart is is hungry, is a 
parent who very likely, to some degree, will be getting life from their kids, as well as from the other things. Uh, You end up with uh, the kids meeting the parents' needs rather than the other way around. Yeah, the job of kids, when you have hungry parents, the job of kids is to make the parents feel like they've got a life. Uh, the job of kids is to convince everybody that their parents are wonderful and righteous and godly and wise. The job of kids is to make the couple feel like they've got a life together because the reality is the couple may not have a life together except for the children. Uh, if you're living life on empty, then it may be, this often happens, parents begin to live vicariously through their kids. Uh, They're feeding off their kids. They're feeling good because their kids are are doing everything that they wish they could have done. My kid's going to be the doctor that I never never became, the sports star that I always wanted to be, the singer that I always knew I could have been if only I would have had a chance. You begin to live vicariously through your kids. And let me just say, parents, be aware of that. It's, it's It's a common addiction, but there is nothing worse to foster upon a kid than that. Life is hard enough for a kid They don't need to be doing your life, meeting your needs. Kids crack under that. And and what invariably happens is the kids don't measure up. The kids, you know, don't live out your dreams. And uh, then that does weird stuff to you. The the frustration you've got on life and the emptiness you feel gets projected onto the kids. And it looks ugly and does damage to the kids. I was at a, a, a Little League baseball game a number of years ago when my kids were that age. And there's this little kid who struck out. And, and he was embarrassed and kind of walked over to the bench like this, you know, and, and sits down. And then his dad comes out from the stands and goes over by the side of the bench and grabs his hand. And he's mad. And he's talking to him loud enough that we all heard, saying, I told you to keep the elbow up, the elbow up, and, and your foot planted here, you know. And then he smacks the kid. And, and we're like, it's like, ah, don't do, oh. You see, and, and what that's about, you know, it's a stupid Baseball game. It's supposed to be fun. <laughs> you know, didn't you read the memo? It's supposed to be fun. Building self-esteem for the kid. But see what's going on? The, the, the dad is trapped. He's frustrated with the loser life he's living. And so now he's trying to live it through his son. And his son's striking out just like he always does. And so he's taking the frustration of life out on his son. And the cycle will likely go on and on and on. Parents, you've got one priority in life that's greater than your priority to your kids. And that is for you to get a life. For you to have a relationship with God that is life-giving. In fact, this applies to all of us and all of our relationships. However important they may be, there's one thing that's actually more important than them. And that is for you to have a life. To be getting life from Jesus Christ. The best thing you can do for others is to be the best you you can be. And you can't be that unless you've got the the, the umbilical cord between you and God working where you're getting life from him. You can't give Christ-like love if you're not getting Christ-like love. You can't ascribe unsurpassable worth to your kids and others if you're not getting unsurpassable worth from your creator. You can't be about meeting the needs of others if your innermost needs are not being met. Which means that the parents, the best thing you can do for your kids is to invest in yourself, to invest in your relationship with God on a continual basis. And that takes time. You need to make time to spend with God, to commune with God, to talk with God, to listen from God, to let God just love you, to let God just pour out his blessing on you, to take walks with him, to worship him, to be in his word. Take, you've got to carve out time for yourself. That's not selfish. 
That's doing life. That's what it is to do life. There's nothing selfish about that. Uh, you know, look, at if you were starving to death physically, you're not going to be much good for your kids because all you can think about is where am I going to get a piece of bread to keep me alive? You're not going to be much good to anybody if you're starving to death. So nobody here is going to think you're selfish for taking time out to eat a meal on a regular basis. So also, I'm here to tell you, you're not much good to your kids in terms of the kingdom if you're starving to death spiritually. And so it's not selfish for you to at times go to the banquet table on a regular basis and, and feast Feast in the love of God and let him just give you life and ascribe to you that unsurpassable worth and begin to experience the, the, the fullness of life that comes from him. It's a non-negotiable need. It's got to happen. Life gets crazy busy, uh, insanely busy. I got that. Uh, you, you, there's, you got your job 60 hours a week and you got to come home and fix the supper and do the dishes and run the kids, the gymnastics and softball and t-ball and volleyball and ballet and then there's the doctor's appointments and then you got to fix the garage door and, and mow the lawn and, 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 and just do life. It gets crazy busy. But I'm telling you, however busy it is, this is, this is a matter of highest urgency. Make time for yourself. Make time to be alone with God and enjoy God as God enjoys you and keep that relationship alive. It may be that some of you have, when you, when you are alone with God, it doesn't feel life-giving at all. It just doesn't, it feels boring to you. Nothing, it doesn't seem to feed you and that's why it's not a high priority. And I don't mean this to be an advertisement, but I just want to throw this out here to think about. Uh, if that is where you're at, I, I, there's a book I wrote that recovers this ancient form of prayer called Cataphatic Prayer. The book's called Seeing is Believing. It's out there in the bookstore. And it's all about having a, a, a time with God that is experiential and concrete and, and, and life-giving. And so it's something to, to maybe look into. But the principle is this. You've got to be getting life if you're going to give life. The best thing you can do for your kids is to have a life and, 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 and go to the source of life on a regular basis. Principle number two. Similar to number one, but in a different application. Couples, you've got to get a life. Couples, you've got to get a life, and that life has got to be together. Now, many households, about a third of all households in the U.S., for a wide, wide variety of reasons, are single-parent households. And if you're a single parent, this point won't specifically apply to you, but it might in the future, so don't tune me out. And if you don't plan on being a parent or a couple in the future, don't tune me out because there's principles here that apply to everybody. But here, here's, the, here's the deal. In God's plan, in God's plan, a couple would come together. He's getting life from God. She's getting life from God. They, feed, they have an individual relationship with God where the, ba the basic needs of their life to have worth and significance and value and security are being met. So they don't come into the relationship to try to suck life off of one another. That never works. They come to the relationship to express the fullness that they have from Christ on their own. And now they create a dance. They invite each other in on their own celebration of life and their identity in Christ. So the couple comes together and they overflow it with love towards one another. And they create this third thing. And out of the fullness of life that comes from that shared life and love together comes sometimes a child. They bring, life brings forth life. That's the principle of the kingdom. And so they bring forth a life, and the, they are thereby inviting that child in on the dance to share in the life and the fullness that they have together. 
In their own way, they are mirroring the Trinity. They're like a fractal of the Trinity, where God, out of the fullness of life, not out of need, but out of the fullness of life that God has within himself throughout eternity, God expresses who he is by creating another. He creates a world and then invites the world to join in the dance. That's what's going on here in creation. God is inviting us to join in on the dance. Uh, all kingdom activity in its own way reflects that dynamic, but nowhere more beautifully and profoundly than in the marriage relationship that brings forth couples. But I want you to notice here that the whole, the whole design hinges on the couple having a shared life and love apart from the child. You can't invite a child in on something that you don't have apart from the child. You're following this. What happens in the fallen world often is that people fall in love, they get married, they have a life together, then they have kids. One or two or three, sometimes three or four at the same time. And life gets profoundly busy and there are bills to pay and more jobs to take on and the house to fix. And it can happen, it often happens, that the attention goes from each other to being exhaustively defined by the kids and the task of doing life. And as life grows on, people change. But if you're not in relationship to one another, you change apart from one another. You grow apart from one another. You stop understanding each other. You become more mystery to one another. Because you got married to meet certain uh, natural intimacy needs, because, and because the two people aren't sharing real in intimacy, they're not feeling like they're known and understood, resentment starts to build up in the relationship. And with the more the resentment, the more the misunderstanding, the greater the distance between them, which leads to more resentment, more misunderstanding, and more resentment, more distance between them. And it can happen if you're not careful that one morning you wake up and you realize that what you really got that you call a marriage is, is two people who don't like themselves or understand each other very much, functioning as roommates who are raising kids together and paying off visa bills together. But that's not why you got married. Uh, this is actually something like this. It's always more complicated than this, but something like this happened with my wife and I. Uh, where about nine years ago, eight, nine years ago, we, we just had to look at things realistically and really had to kind of notice the white elephant in the middle of the room. It was crazy busy at times. Honey, wasn't it crazy busy for a period of time in our life where you're like tag team parenting and tag team visa bill paying. You know, you're just constantly running around and all of that. And a lot of that's natural, but we didn't sufficiently guard our relationship as a good in and of itself. And we finally had to notice the white elephant in the middle of the room, the vacuous white elephant in the middle of the room. And uh, that's one of the most unfun things in the world. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's painful, but you've got to do it. I've seen uh, one too many marriages fall on the rocks like this. I, when I was teaching at Bethel, parents would come and drop off their kids, the, the last of their children is sent away to college, and they go home and they file for divorce. I, it was a pattern I saw over and over. Because they go back to the empty nest and the empty nest is not just empty of kids, it's empty of anything that you'd call a real relationship. And they're too tired to actually try to put the pieces back together again. Life gets profoundly busy. We, uh, I got that. That, that. That's part of life. But non-negotiable principle number one is you've got to, got to, got to make time for your own relationship with God. And non-negotiable principle number two is you've got to, got to, got to make time. Couples for one another. You've got to, as a matter of urgency, make time to get out and have fun. You've got to make time to go out and dance. 
You've got to make time to wine and dine and court one another. You've got to take time, make the time, somehow, whatever it takes. You've got to do it. This is a non-negotiable. Where you party together, where you romance together, where you make love together. You know, where you get to know one another, you explore one another. And the adventure of learning about one another doesn't stop. You've got to make time to be married, to do what you got married to do. And you didn't get married to pay off visa bills and just have kids. You got married because you liked each other. You enjoyed one another. You wanted to celebrate life together. You got married to replicate the love of the Trinity in a microcosm kind of way, though maybe you didn't tag it that way. You came to do what God created human beings to do and to celebrate it. Take time to do that, to be the couple that you wanted to be. Having your heart towards kids does not mean that, you're, that the kids suck up your life. No, you've got to have a life apart from the kids. Now, maybe someone's here saying, but you just don't understand. There's no time. There's no money. Uh, You just don't understand us. This is idealistic. Oh, you can say that because your kids are growing. Uh, You just don't know our situation. Look at, um, uh, I I do know the situation. But uh, here's, people say often, you know, in 10 years, maybe in 10 years, Five years, five years for sure. Oh, then we'll be able to share some time together. Okay, look at Maybe that's true. But I don't know if in five, five or ten years you're going to want to do it. You see, by then you might have destroyed the precious thing. Here's the principle. No ifs, ands, or buts. Non-negotiable. It is never the right time to put the relationship on hiatus. Never. Whatever it takes, you've got to carve out the time for the relationship. You've got to. If you find that you don't have the time or the money, here's two fundamental questions to ask yourself. Number one, do you need to work so much? Do you really need to work so much? Now, of course, you're saying right now, yes, we're hardly making ends meet as it is. We can't, you know, we've got to pay for the house, we've got to pay for the cars, we've got to pay for the cabin, we've got to pay for the clothes. We're hardly making ends meet. Which leads to this question, and this is a good kingdom question that kingdom people always ought to be asking. Do you need that house? Do you need those cars? Do you need that cabin? And do you need all those clothes? You know, ask a fundamental question. Your relationship with God, which takes time, and your relationship with each other, which takes time, is infinitely more precious than the house and the cars and the cabin and the clothes. So if the house and the car and the cabin and the clothes is forcing you to work so much that you don't have time for your relationship with God and relationship with with each other, I suggest that you lose the house, the cars, and the cabin and the clothes. (laughs) Downsize it. Get rid of it. Uh, it, It's a bad trade-off. One of the reasons why, why, why there is such a high divorce rate in America, highest on the planet, is because we're the ones who are strapped with this thing we call the American dream. I submit to you it's more like the American nightmare. We're sociologically conditioned to think that our, our, need, our, our wants, nice things, are our, our basic needs in life. And so most of us live beyond our means, which means there's all this pressure on us and all these time constraints to get us working more than than we have to, and that hinders the real important things of life, which are about relationships. As Jesus saw, in fact, every wise person throughout history has seen possessions suck time, emotion, money, and energy from us. And so in one sense, the less you have of them, the more free you are. Ask the fundamental question. Maybe you need to swim more upstream on the American dream and, and purchase for yourself that, that, that thing which is priceless, which is time and less stress, 
it really is a better trade-off. Living in a house half the size you got, but peacefully, is way better than living in your nice, huge house, which is more than you need, but living under perpetual stress with no time. Question number two, do you need to have the kids involved in so much? I see many well-intentioned parents, they feel like they're cheating their kids if they're not involved in everything. And the trouble is there's so many things that they can be involved in now. When I was a kid, you know, there was three sports and five extracurricular activities to choose from. Now there's 3,000 sports and 5,000 extracurricular activities. And some very well-intentioned parents think their kids got to be involved in all of them. It's kind of the, the American version of, uh, it's kind of the parenting version of the American dream. I want my kids to have everything. And they mean well. But look at it, it's nuts. It's crazy. You, you, you run yourself ragged. Here's an interesting uh, statistic I found on the internet. The average American parent spends less than 15 quality minutes a day interacting with each of their children. Less than 15 minutes a day. Many of those parents spend two or more hours a day running their kids around. What's wrong with this picture? There's nothing at all wrong with getting your kids, keeping your kids active and having them involved in things and trying things out. But, but they're finite, and they're human, and you're human, and you're finite. There's limitation towards to this. And as good as the sports and extracurricular activities are, what your kid needs more than football, what your kid needs more than basketball and volleyball and ballet, what your kid needs more than all of that is you. A time with you. Time where you're getting to know them, and they're getting to know you. Time where you're just sitting together. What they need more than voice lessons and clarinet and trumpet and tuba or whatever else you're going to get them involved in. Those are all good things. But there's got to be a balance here. What they need is some time with you, walks with you, uh, questions from you, where they get to know you and you get to know them. And what the kids desperately need, more than an American dream fulfilling super mom and an American dream fulfilling super dad, what they need is a mom and dad. Who, who, who model what a healthy relationship is, who, who model that, you know what, adults have a life that, that isn't based on the kids. What the kids need to see is, is the, the love of God modeled in the way parents relate to each other and in the way that the parents relate to them. What the kids need to know, you know, it, the healthiest thing you can do is to say, kids, you know what, uh, mom and dad are going away to a hotel uh, for the night. In fact, we'll, we'll, we'll see you in a couple of days. Uh, and we're having someone in our small group or Aunt Susie or, or someone, some babysitter come over. And, and they need to hear that. You know why, kids? Because we've got a life. That's right. Surprise. We've got a life. We love each other. And we want to keep it that way, so we're going to spend some time together. Newsflash to children. I am not an ATM machine. That's right. I'm a little more than that. I'm not a taxi driver. I'm not a bus driver. And I'm not a housemaid. I am a human being who's in love with another human being. And we're going to celebrate that fact. That's Amen. Amen. Turn, turn the, the reason why in the kingdom the hearts of parents are turned to the kids is because in the kingdom, parents got a life. Uh, and they have a life from Christ, and they have a life together. And uh, now you can manifest that life towards your kids. Now your heart can be towards your kid because it's not exhaustively defined by your children. Uh, as I close in prayer, think about these two questions, and they're just the fundamental kingdom questions. Individually, are you getting your life from Christ, your worth from Christ, your value from Christ, your meaning from Christ, your sense of fullness from Christ? Because to the extent that you're not, you're going to be an idolater chasing stuff. It's going to hinder your parenting in every other area of your life. Get your life from Christ, and that takes time. Uh, regularly have times where you're with Christ. Question number two, 
For couples, are you spending the time needed to express and to celebrate and to build the relationship you have together? There's no coasting in this thing. You can't just coast. Uh, not for very long. You've got to be investing in that. Uh, can we all stand? And I just want to close in this benediction. Father, we surrender to your kingdom. Uh, Lord, bless the fathers who are in this place. Make them kingdom fathers. And also bless the mothers in this place. Make them kingdom mothers. Lord, for the single parents, we just pray extra blessing on them. Uh, be, be the other partner in that uh, relationship and, and help them be kingdom parents, Lord God. And as we all leave this place, Lord, uh, uh, continually draw us like a solid magnet back to you, Lord. You are the source of our life, all that we are. Remind us of that fact. Help us to, Lord God, swim upstream on the American dream and live free. Lord, for all the parents, turn their hearts to the children. And as we go out of this place, help us to further the revolution in our own lives and in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our community. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. God bless you. Go out and do the kingdom.